Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of The Witch Wave. Now, full disclosure, this episode was originally intended to be just for my Witch Wave Plus Patreon backers, as they get bi-weekly bonus content. But after my conversation with today's guest, Cece Pascal, I decided that this really needed to be heard and shared as far and wide as possible. And that's because Cece is running a magical and massive GoFundMe campaign to save their family's ancestral home in North Carolina, and their deadline is coming up fast at the end of this month, April 2023. And so my instinct, or maybe it was Cece's very powerful ancestors intervening, I would not be surprised, told me that I needed to get this out from behind the Patreon paywall and put it on main. And so that is what we are doing here. Now, I recorded this conversation from my Brooklyn apartment, and Cece was in their Brooklyn apartment, so sound quality is a smidge more cash than usual, because Witch Wave Plus episodes are often sometimes more like fireside chats, if you will. But Cece's story is so compelling and their mission is so important that, yes, I'm releasing it into the wild, as is, ad-free, to fill everyone's feeds and hearts and minds. Now, you might recognize Cece Pascal's name because I thank them at the end of every Witch Wave and Witch Wave Plus episode, and that's because Cece is essentially the Witch Wave fairy podmother and sonic sensei. Cece is an award-winning audio producer and audio journalist and artist, and also my friend, and their encouragement and Zoom audio recorder 101 lessons and early editing of this show helped give me the confidence and support that I needed to launch this whole project, and I will always be thankful for that. On to Cece's bio, and I should say that Cece's pronouns are she, they, so you will hear both myself and her switching fluidly between them. Cece Pascal currently heads editorial content and development at the audio production house Molten Heart. She also teaches audio documentary art, most recently at the SALT Institute for Documentary Studies at Maine College of Art and Design. Their book, Audiocraft, The Art and Business of Making Podcasts That Mean Something, is out later this year from Routledge. Previously, Cece was the series editor of NPR's critically acclaimed narrative series, Louder Than a Riot, about the interconnected rise of mass incarceration and hip-hop culture, as well as Malcolm Gladwell's Broken Record, and the award-winning independent show about intimacy and power, The Heart. In 2017, Cece was a lead producer on Gimlet Media's Peabody Award-winning production, Uncivil, where she honed her genealogical research skills and first discovered her Melungeon Free People of Color ancestry. And as you're about to hear in our conversation, 
All of that is what led CC on this deeply spiritual journey to connect with their own North Carolina roots and to heed the calling from her ancestors to protect and preserve their family's ancestral home, which you, yes you, can help with now by going to CC's GoFundMe page, which is linked to via CC's Instagram account, and that is CC Pascal. C C P A S C H A L. And we'll be linking to it in the show notes as well. Please do help share this GoFundMe as far and wide as you possibly can. And please also consider contributing to it if you are able to. I see support of CC's GoFundMe as a magic spell. I see this as community care and activism. And if you are a white person here in America like I am, I also see this as reparations. So please do give whatever you can. Cece is often based in Portland, Maine, though they joined me from their apartment in Brooklyn for this conversation via Zoom. Cece Pascal, welcome to Witch Wave Plus. That was me dancing to the theme song in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you, are you, are you good? I, I don't hear anything. I just got a lovely private dance. You're my private dancer. Oh, maybe the context Ooh. of that song is Ooh. not appropriate. Ooh. But anyhow. Listen, well, that was one of my favorite songs growing up. Because my grandmother used to listen to it on Saturday mornings. And now I'm, you're making me call into question a lot of things. <laughs> wow. Quick story. My mom, this is making me think of how... My mom once sent me this bitmoji icon of herself. And you know, it's like her avatar. And she's sitting on a heart-shaped bed, patting it like, come sit next to me. And I was like, mom, that bitmoji does not mean what you think it means. It's not, it's not come snuggle with me. No. No. So maybe, was that Grandma Louise who liked private dancer? Grandma Louise, who, who liked the private dancing, yeah. Wow. Well, maybe, you know, she sounds salty. Maybe she she was really, really into um, erotic, exotic dance. You know what? Grandma was also a bartender um, for, for a period of time, and, uh, and and I think a pretty good one. I think she, uh, she was a little bit of a, a neighborhood disco queen, you know, when she wasn't working hard. Uh, uh, so it's, it's definitely not out of the realm. <laughs> I love that. Well, speaking of the realms of grandmas, we're going to talk about a different side of your family, I understand today. And the reason we are gathered here today, in addition to me just adoring you and you being the witch wave fairy pod mother which, you know, lots of listeners are very familiar with me thanking you at the end of every podcast because if it wasn't for your friendship and your audio sensei-ism, <laughs> I don't know that the witch wave would have kicked off the way it kicked off. So I'm endlessly grateful for you. But I want to chat about your newest endeavor. 
and maybe it'll touch on your world of audio and podcasting. Maybe not. Um, everyone, I'll just say, go check out all of CeCe's incredible podcasts. And if you ever want to work with CeCe, fucking do it because you are, you're, you're the game. You're the podcasting game. You're the <laughs> audio journalism game right here. Oh, thank you. And I'm writing a book about it too. So that'll be out <laughs> when I finally stop procrastinating with other huge ancestral projects um, yeah <laughs> yes yes so all the shouts and all the flowers to your audio ingeniousness but the reason that I wanted you to come on is because you are doing spiritual work right now that is also material work that is so moving to me and I think as many people as possible should hear about this story and support what you are doing so we brought up grandma's and this project is that you are currently in the process of raising what's now a fucking ton of money uh, to help preserve your ancestral land. And I would love for you to start telling us how this project came to be. Sure. You know, the the, the real origin or seed of, of this project really began when I was 18. I grew up not knowing my biological father. It was always kind of a mystery, just this name on a birth certificate. We were never able to um, track down. My, my parents had um, lost each other's phone numbers and contact with each other in the 80s. And I guess back then it was possible to just then never see a person again. Just so um, little vanish moment and there may have been a little miscommunication about whether or not uh i was happening and then i did happen and then uh yeah so then i grew up kind of wondering uh, every time we had a family tree project like where i came from and and also you know this is growing up in the 90s in the era of like you know if you didn't know who your daddy was, you could go, like, go to Maury or like Oprah and like maybe they would find it. So I remember like, you know, uh, <laughs> well-meaning adults from like my step family being like, yeah, maybe one day, you know, Oprah will find your daddy for you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. Yes. I remember those shows well. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and this is like in the days before the, the internet was nearly as robust as it is now. So like, you know, if you wanted to find someone that you had lost like that, you needed a private investigator. And um, and my mom had tried unsuccessfully to try to, to track my father down. So when I was going off to college, I was sort of making peace with this idea that uh, I, I guess I guess for a long time I, I, I thought, oh, it'll be fine. Like, I, I'm still who I am, even without that knowledge. And there's lots of people who never get to know their families um who are okay and I've already established an identity in the life thus far but you know I had I had an aunt and you know step aunt who was like who really you know and my grandmother Louise my mom's mom who you know were both very supportive of, of the idea that I at least um try and so I began researching then and you know like I said the internet wasn't it was asked Jeeves and Jeeves didn't really know much. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Jeeves yeah. did not know what was going on with your family. I promise you that. He definitely did not know where your daddy was. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> but I kept asking <laughs> periodically over the years. 
And I was, um, you know, I had a really um, kind of intense uh, family experience happen when I was 18 years old that also emancipated me. And so I became, um, you know, a, a legally a legal full adult, like responsible for myself uh, financially. And, mm. and I'd already been supporting myself through high school financially and supporting other family members. Um, and I worked like 30 hours of the week, like while I was in high school mm. on top of like all these extracurricular activities and all these things. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm at this point where I'm also like very creative in high school and it all comes to a head um, because I was working on a memoir based off of this experience of like trying to locate myself within this it almost felt there was kind of this running joke in my family that I it was like some kind of immaculate conception type deal because no one really knew how I got here no one could really account for anything Mm -hmm. Um, and there are like no real like good like reliable narrators in in this story was this memoir going to be a written memoir or an audio uh like the early version of a podcast if you will you know it's so wild that you asked that i mean one of the the biggest challenges i had with this was the form of it it started out written um the summer my summer of my freshman year i was just like I was, I was all inspired by the great American novel. And I was like, this is mine. I'm, I'm doing it. And so I wrote drafts and drafts and drafts. And just trying to capture my experience of this coming of age while I was coming of, of that age. And, um, and I knew that over time I was like, oh, it's not all um, written. It's multimedia. You know, but at the time we didn't really, you know, ebooks weren't even really like a thing like that. But I was like, I want it to be like, immersive and a thing that is I'm also visually trained as a visual artist I ended up getting my bachelor's degree um and in fine arts and and painting and sculpture so then you know it became sort of like a a graphic novel but one that also had audio and and video and hyperlinked elements so Mm, so you were ahead of your time my friend yeah so and in trying to like explain this to people in like 2006 or 2007 yeah like yeah. So, and, and even, you know, ar- around that time, I sort of, I channeled a, a, the title of it or sort of, you know, epiphany, the title of it was called Magic Babies Made from Stars. Mm. And like, that was my, my, my guidepost. And so I'm like, okay, this is the story of me f- figuring out where I came from and sort of like unlearning the magical thinking that my family inspired to account for this lack of knowledge mm, mm. Um, and the deeper I wrote the the more the more I realized that it actually wasn't possible to tell the story until I actually found out the truth about what happened with my father yes you had to become a, a young detective <laughs> so I kind of put the writing on hold and then really got into the research and um, it was a trickle at first um, just because there's there weren't a lot of records online and for a while it, it, the, the trail went cold and I couldn't really find anything but then I would like every I don't know six months four to six months two three times a year I would just type the name my dad's name from the birth certificate into a search engine and you know nothing really helpful nothing would really come up let me ask you did you have any kind of spiritual practice at this point uh, you know that's also a question <laughs> i um i 
it's it's inseparable from my upbringing um my stepdad was like a a child preacher prodigy he was ordained when he was 15 years old wow and and was sort of uh, the prodigal son within this uh christian black christian family um who was like one of the founding families of like one of the biggest churches in in philadelphia Mm. and so from the time i could remember being around people and, and like that that energy that creative um that, that just sort of like captivating being swept up sort of like energy um especially through like the song and the dance and performance of, of church was always a part of it but my mother is also a witch like and and she for a long time did not use that word um I don't use that word to describe myself. I'm still on the journey to kind of um, figure out the the language. Um, but I think my experience is is reflective of being of having a lot of exposure to things over the years. And like my earliest memories with my mom would be she would take me in downtown Philadelphia to see her tarot reader in Old City. And like one time she like we like took like a, a horse and carriage and we would have like these mommy daughter days and then we would go like to harry's occult shop on south I was street just which is- gonna ask about harry's yes so i was i was, I was a toddler like and, and i didn't again like i didn't have context for this until i got older but like it's always been there like the smell of incense the you know the velvet the the, the, the bowls full of, of rocks and i just remember like playing in, in all the crystals and so yes. i had both of these forces like very equally present in my life. And um, my mother had also practiced Buddhism for um, off and on before I was born, like when she was carrying me, I believe. And then also when my mom and stepdad separated. Um, so there was a period of time where I was also introduced to, to Buddhist practice for about two years. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I had a, <laughs> a very spiritual upbringing, but not one that... Um, not one that fits into meat thing at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So eventually you find out more information and, you know, Jeeves maybe isn't more helpful, but maybe some other sites are. <laughs> and this leads you to what? Yeah. So in 2015, I believe, or well, fall of 2014, um, you know, it was time for my annual, biannual um search for your dad on the internet also <laughs> mm-hmm. I did that and then this time I was like you know maybe maybe he's no longer with us in this realm um and so that had been a thing I'd been kind of thinking about but hadn't really been ready to like investigate but this time I typed in um his name or what I thought was his name and obituary mm. and the first thing that popped up was this beautiful black woman with glasses it was a black and white photo and she had like you know it's really pretty kind of cropped curled hair like a high school graduation photo or something but she resembled me and I was I was really shook <laughs> and so I was like, okay well you know maybe I'm just sort of like my brain is really trying to make connections here. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, why did, why did this search result come up? So then I look into like the section of, um, I should also mention this person, it was, it was the, the pamphlet from their funeral and they had just passed away about two weeks prior. So this was like very recent. Wow. And I looked into the, 
um, survived by. And that's where I found my dad's name listed. And I learned for the first time that the name of my birth certificate was wrong. It had a different middle name. So I took that name that I found in the obituary and I searched with that and then boom, I got all the vital records. Whoa, I have chills right now. My body is buzzing. Did you have a sense at that point that the person whose obituary it was, was guiding you to this man, this child of hers? Or is that more like a retrospective framework you're putting on it? This person was my aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so my dad was listed as, as the surviving brother. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, it was just, it was, it was so uncanny. And I think especially because of just like the timing of it as well, that it definitely felt um, like more than kismet. It felt like, you know, it was, it was, I think, clear to me at that point that this was uh, a spiritual, you know, Yeah, you were being guided. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that was like the first real connection. And then from there, I, you know, because I finally had the right information, I was able to bring together some other things. I'd reached out to some people that, I mean, again, I didn't, I didn't have full context. So I didn't know like if my dad was married, I didn't know if he had been married when I was conceived. So I had all these other things to kind of work out about like, how was I going to actually contact this family in a way that like, wouldn't freak them out yeah. or, you know, anyway, I had just a small window to like gain their trust and like introduce myself and, and do the whole thing. Mm. Um, but also it was just like very aware of the responsibility of being like showing up <laughs> to someone. And, and I was um, almost 30 at this time. <laughs> so I was yeah. just like, uh, yeah, hi, <laughs> I exist. Don't know if you know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Well, it must be hard to know, too. Yeah, like, are you going to rock the boat? Are you going to be welcome? Are people going to think you want something from them? Are you going to be embraced? Like, all of it must be so vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, But, yeah, I was was just trying to learn as much as I could at this point, like, mostly through the story of of the records. And that's a skill that I have from being a journalist, right? And there's so much of my work. And later on, I evolved to do more historical and genealogical research as well, professionally, um, within the context of my investigative reporting. But um, this, this was, you know, the definitely the beginning of, of being able to, to work with archives in in a way that, you know, City of Hartman uses the phrase critical fabulations um Mm. and that's yeah taking what we know of the archives and sort of reverse engineering what we what we think happened you know given our knowledge of the historical context and and these artifacts Uh, i mean i often say that genealogical work is spiritual work because i think so many of us just feel a deeper sense of who we are, where we came from, what our spiritual path is or has been once we find out more about our ancestors and our families. And I realize that not everybody has that privilege, Um, but I'm really happy for you since this was something you were searching for, that it led you to have a little of the mystery revealed. No real anchoring in in my own um, 
physical power. Like there is something about, you know, when I finally did connect with my, with my father and, and, you know, attorney tested and the whole thing, you know, welcome to the family. Um, I got a surprise extra sister that month too. It was wild. So, uh, (laughs) but part of the, the introduction was my, my father took me to the place where he was born and spent the first 10 years of his life before moving to Raleigh, which is called Spring Hope, North Carolina. And it's about a half hour away from Raleigh. And there was something about, you know, by, by this point, you know, I'd also had gotten a chance in that same trip. My dad took me to meet my great aunt Thelma, who was my grandmother's sister. And she at the time was the last living sibling um, of, of my grandmother's generation. And so that was like such a special and, and meaningful connection to be able to make. And, you know, but by the time I, I finally got to the family, you know, I learned that a lot of people in the family were deceased. So my grandmother and my, my grandfather had long been deceased since the seventies. My grandmother, Mary passed away in 2010. Mm. Um, that aunt that I mentioned had passed away in 2014 and, and her older sister in, in 2015 mm. who um, uh, had inherited the, the grandmother's house. So my dad was, is the last sibling of his generation. He also had an older brother, um, Butch, who, who died young. Um, he was in his early thirties. Um, so there is a real sense of like getting to the party, like as it was ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It must feel really bittersweet to discover you have all this family and also discover that you missed knowing them here in the material world by just a few years. That's really heartaching. Yeah. That part is like really hard. And um, it's also really hard because the the other aunt, uh, my aunt Brenda, who is the oldest, like I'm like a doppelganger, like, like, when I saw her picture, I like gasped because I was like, did I go time traveling? Like I already existed here. Yes. Um, and my grandmother, Louise, who was my, my mom's mom, you know, when she saw pictures of my dad's family, she was like, and also she was a human paternity test. So. <laughs> <laughs> she Louise was like, knew things. He just knew things. She could look at a baby and be like, that toe is crooked. That is not, that is not the father. You know, like, and she, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a couple of cousins that, oh, anyway, but I don't <laughs> <laughs> We won't open all the cans of worms right now, Cece. This is not Maury Povich. Maury Povich? Oh, stop oh. it. Please fire me. I'm going oh, home now. Oh, gosh, I am okay. home. <laughs> That's the, the extra bonus episode. <laughs> This is what happens when I get silly with you. Anyway, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, yeah. So I, my grandmother was like, oh, like, you are of these people. Like, you know, obviously you're my granddaughter, but like your your body, your blood is of this, this line, your father's line. <sighs> and like, she's right, right? It's like all the physical characteristics. But along with that also comes like now all this knowledge of their early deaths and their her health issues. Um, and, you know, I'm sure some of it was external and environmental, but um, it anchored me to my power by making me come face to face with mortality mm. in a way that felt so abstract before when I didn't 
know who came before me. Yes. Yes. So, wow. I have so many questions, but I'll just trust my instincts and ask for you to go a little deeper on what, what was that power? Did it feel mm-hmm. like, uh, did it feel spiritual? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I started by talking about the, the premise of, of that book that I was writing, because that book is 1000% like a spiritual project. Like even when I was 18, I knew I was like, oh, a casual existential um, exploration of, of my place in the universe um, vis-a-vis various like, you know, mythology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of the cosmos. Yeah, that's not not a spiritual project. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So let's catch people up to where this has led you in terms of the project that you just launched. So you meet your father and all of these other connections of your family history on his side of the family come blazing through and you're learning about this and piecing it together. And then what happens? So, yeah. So, you know, it was like just such an, an, an exciting flurry of like exchanging information when I get to the family. I've also been a, like, I was pretty well into my career as a producer at that point. And I had just worked on this show called Uncivil, um, which was about sort of stories of how black people freed themselves um, and, and the things that led up to the civil war and how they're still present today. And excuse me, Cece, you won a Peabody award for this as <laughs> did your colleagues. And I will never stop shouting that from the rooftops. because I'm <laughs> so fucking proud of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, you keep, me, keep me honest. I mean, yeah, okay, we want a few body. Um, <laughs> keep you shining. <laughs> um, and and so one of the episodes that I was the lead producer for um, was started with this question: um, How did slavery become legal in America? Like, how did it become codified? And they gave me one guy's name, John Punch, who was the first legal slave uh, person enslaved in America's history. Um, and uh, and I was supposed to connect him to Barack Obama, genealogically. Wow. <laughs> that was the premise. And they were like, go, have fun. Did they have any proof that that was true or this is a little spoiler alert for anyone who happens to listen to the episode. It's called The Sentence. Um, but yeah, there, there had already been a, a report that Ancestry.com had published that had linked them um, okay. as, as direct descendant. But through that convention, I was supposed to tell the story of, of how slavery became legalized. Wow. And so as I'm doing this research, I'm like realizing they've asked me an impossible question that like not even the like... <laughs> world's foremost historians that I'm chatting up on the phone every day can answer. They're, com- they're coming to me being like, you know, yeah, that would be a great dissertation. I'm like, okay, yeah, but could- what if we made a 20-minute podcast about it instead? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow, wow, wow. Oof. But what ended up happening was that through just, like, <laughs> sheer persistence and force of will and wanting to keep my job, I, like, 
ended up finding this other thread about the fact that this is actually the story of like what happened to mixed race people um, as laws about slavery were being devised like literally under their feet. And so I ended up tracking the migration of the mixed race people who came out of Jamestown and they went into Northern North Carolina um, and then many of these families through the genealogical work, you keep seeing the same surnames over and over again. And then as I spoke with other, his, uh, other historians, I am not a historian, as I mentioned, I'm an artist. I'm an artist who's like taken on a lot of things. Um, and some of the work I do is history, but I talk to actual historians um, and even one geologist um, who used GIS research in order to track down um, historical records about people's status of land and freedom because remember if people were property then a lot of the information that we seek about our, our ancestors if we have black ancestry is often not found in the vital records they're found in property records yep mm. so property records like and i get chills now because like people are like, why are you so into like looking through land you know <laughs> wills and deeds and stuff um so yeah so i ended up finding out that property records is where the realty is. And so that's part of why I became really passionate about what is happening uh, because you also get like context out of that. You get information about people's relationships. Like did their marriage work out? Like what was, were they on good terms with their in-laws? Like, you know, I found one ancestor in the record who had been taken to court over um, like some sort of bastardom. Like they called him out and fined him for like creating a bastard child. Like, so you find all kinds of. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like they, mm. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. and, and yeah, and you get to also see um, how families intermarried and inter and intermingled, which was really key for these people that I'm, uh, who are free people of color are, are often um, branched out of, of uh, the, out of Melungeon ancestry. And Melungeons are uh, a tri-racial isolate, which means they're three distinct um ethnic groups uh generally uh of african uh european and native american descent it's mm -hmm. like a very deeply american genetic identity that came out of uh settler colonialism and yeah and so in that research you know the, the i had come across the, the name pettiford and uh when my when i met my dad he mentioned that his mother was a Pettiford and that they had owned, owned this land. And as soon as I said those two things, I was like, Pettiford, they're free people of color, owned land. Like, there's records. There's yes. a history. Yes. Cece, forgive me for not knowing this, but was it pretty rare for Black people in Raleigh, North Carolina, or Spring Hope, North Carolina, to own land? Because I would assume so, but I, I could be very, very wrong. Yeah, it was very rare. And that's what, like a bunch of what I learned when I was researching the codification of slavery, right? Because it was really built one law at a time. Essentially, there were laws that were created to cut off all possible paths to freedom. Um, and so restricting, prohibiting access of land ownership was one of the first things you know, that happened that eventually, like we see being tied to voting rights um, 
discrimination because or like things that were grandfathered in like those grandfather clauses like you can vote if you're a landholder you can vote if your grandfather owned land but your grandfather may not be permitted to own land if he had been enslaved so that's how black people were systemically disenfranchised very early on in like the republic's creation yep yep exactly exactly okay so you learn that the pettiford family owned this land and that Mm -hmm. leads you to what yeah so it was it's first of all like just so like you mentioned rare um that a black family would have land in their history and i learned from from my relatives that our family had owned uh over a hundred acres of land that um, had been used for farming cotton and tobacco. And as I looked into the records, I was able to to find that the family had been settled there since the early 1800s. The oldest ancestor, Bud, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he was born elsewhere, but he died in Spring Hope. Um, and he was he was born his son who was born in 1825 was born in Spring Hope so I think that the family got there somewhere between 1815 and 1820. Wow wow so naturally my next question was what happened to these hundred acres mm-hmm. and it turned out that in my grandmother's generation um, the family had split the land seven ways there was already one main house on it but and my grandmother had seven siblings, so altogether eight properties. And they split that amongst themselves. They already had, you know, teachers and, and, and some educated folk in the family. But my grandmother wanted to be able to give her kids access to opportunities that they weren't going to be able to get in, in rural um, North Carolina. So in 1966, she moved the family to Raleigh into this house that was newly built and um and was able to get it with a combination of my grandpa's gi money and also equity out of her property from from spring hope so and this is grandma mary correct this is this is grandma mary so this is the grandmother that i never met my my dad's mother Mm. yeah so yeah so i uh so i found you know i went and i and i saw that that house my cousin currently lives there the aunt that i seen whose obituary picture I'd seen and, and her sister, um, who, who I look like had also lived in this house. And my cousin, who was my dad had a twin, um, twin sister. Um, my cousin, her daughter currently lives in, in this house. And when I was first getting to know the family, you know, one of the first important and meaningful conversations I had with my cousin was about how, what are the plans for this house? How do we keep it in the family? Yeah. And I, I just, this was the place where my family grew up um, and, and the place of, of so many memories and, and things that I didn't get a chance to experience, but, you know, just the spirit of that family is in the bones of that house. And, And I could feel it the first time that I set foot there, my grandma's spirit, you know, it's just, I can't quite explain it. It is like, kind of reaching through the veils of time and space and and sharing it's get it the house itself is an archive it's a physical archive and the way that the space is is arranged um 
it puts me into positions of, of literally seeing things through my ancestors' eyes. And that is the closest that I can experience to 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 being with them. And that that gives me a tremendous amount of um, comfort, bittersweet, but it's still really meaningful considering that I, you know, didn't even think that I would get to find any part of my family, you know, um, mm. in, in the living realm or, or elsewhere. Absolutely. Now, listen, I know your cousin, she has to sell this house for personal reasons. And mm-hmm. I know that it is your mission to make sure that your family's legacy of land ownership is still preserved in this ancestral homeland of yours. And to that end, you recently launched a GoFundMe. And the GoFundMe is called Down Payment to Save a Free Black Family's Legacy. You currently have a goal of $50,000 you are already up to $33,866 <laughs> at the time of us recording this on Sunday, <clears throat> April 23rd, a few days before this episode is going to air, with 402 donations. I mean, that alone is such an astounding accomplishment. I know you haven't hit your goal yet, which is one of the many reasons that I wanted you to share this story so we can help you hit that goal. But I wanted to give you a moment to talk about why it's so important, not only for personal reasons, that this homeland stays owned by someone who's an extension of your family, but in the bigger context of like Black home ownership and Black land ownership (laughs) in America, what it means as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, when I first approached my cousin about my interest in this house, I was in a very different place in life. I was an editor at NPR. I was, you know, pulling in six figures um, and I had decent credit. And then life happened, um, you know, and I ended up having some other health issues that prohibited me from from working full time that it took me several years to recover from. And within that, I you know, when, when my cousin reached out to me at the beginning of this year to say, all right, I'm ready to sell. I, I was sort of at a loss because, you know, the window for when I saw the potential for myself to be a homeowner was so small and Mm -hmm. and I was already dealing with the, the grief of of feeling like that, that taken away or, or, you know, just that, that loss. Um, and I, I didn't really, I didn't grow up <laughs> in a place that made me think that I ever could be a homeowner. Um, and reading more into it, like, there's a reason, you know, we know about like the income disparity in America and so much of it, um, you know, starts with our housing. Black folks are only 45% likely to own their home as compared with 75% of, of white Americans. And while there was a period of time where that gap was, was, tighter um we're back to where it was when my grandmother bought this house in the 60s um so there is this way where uh you know and then things like balloon mortgages and 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 all these ways that like you know particularly low-income black folks get uh systemically you know 
blocked out of, of being able to retain these things. So yeah, even the challenge of keeping this house within the family has been difficult and many different family members at different points have, have, you know, taken on the responsibility of, of trying to carry it. And, and the reality is, is that, uh, it, it, there are just so many barriers. There are just so many things that even if you're showing up to work every day and you're doing all the things, you know, and I, and I look at myself as that case, like I, you know, I do a lot of therapies, like not blame myself for not being in a position to be able to buy a house independently. Oh, of course. And, and then I think also about how many Black people, especially in this country, are supporting their families, which are also, you know, having to like really fight against systemic racism all the time. And there, there are so many more barriers, of course, when one is a Black American in, in this fucking country. And it's it's really heartbreaking and sickening. I mean, I know that your vision for this GoFundMe is kind of multifold and there are different versions of how this could turn out. It could be that you're able to make enough money to potentially buy the house. It could be that you're going to buy land in Spring Hope or some area that your ancestors were able to own land. It might be that you're going to start an amazing center for Black femme artists. It could be some combination of all of it. It really depends on the goals and so on. Yeah, we. I definitely feel so strongly. And my sister, who is also very passionate about Black land stewardship, and it's is helping to support with a down payment. Like we both went into this project because we felt so strongly about creating a, a safe space for for Black femmes. You know, the aunts that I mentioned were also creatives. One was uh, a painter and a drawer, and the other one was a DJ. Um, and so I just think about like, yeah, what are the kinds of ways that they could have shown their talents in the world if they hadn't been overcome with all of this other stuff they had to deal with? Yes. Well, listen, you and I met under very bewitching circumstances, and you've been such a supporter of my witchy work. And I know you don't use the word witch to describe yourself, but I consider you like a deeply magical person. I hope that's I'll okay to that. say. <laughs> I do accept that. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and just the way that you know, you and I have talked personally about how connected you feel to the spirit of several of your ancestors who have crossed over. I guess, you know, one of my final questions for you is, are you still feeling guided by your ancestors, even in this GoFundMe? Like, how is that manifesting for you? Yes, I did not start i mean i knew that the prerequisite for starting this was a gonna obviously be checking in checking in with the um stakeholders here in this realm you know my, my living family members and, and getting everybody's sort of buy-in or giving at least people the opportunity to be each other and feel that like this was the the appropriate sort of course of action but i also went to spring hope and i took an offering to my aunts and my grandmother who lived in this house and I asked them if they had any PR contacts or like if they had any like connect connects in, in, in the realty world. Like I don't know. I was just like, I was just like, thank you like so much for the opportunity to, to steward this. And I'm willing and also um 
I need, I need, I need help. You know, like if this is going to happen, it's, you know, and this is a whole other conversation we can have another time, but like having boundaries with yourself and also with spirit of being like very clear and directing what you're asking for. So, and what you're available for and, and yes, so me coming and saying, yes, I'm, I'm open. I'm, you know, the, the information to be channeled was already there. Like the information, like when I said yes, all of a sudden, like I got all these other, like, uh, you know, ancestry.com, like notifications. Like I swear they'd be using ancestry.com to text me. I'm um, saying <laughs> ancestry.com, like they need to pay me because I talk about them so much. Ancestry.com has really helped my spiritual work. And so I'm not surprised that you know i think our ancestors use whatever tools they can they're like tarot cards great ancestry.com great you listen to a song on the radio it's gonna be this song it's gonna be yeah. private dancer no, <laughs> i'm just kidding i'm just kidding wrong side and, of the family <laughs> well you know and i know for for what it's worth i i may not use the, the the title witch for myself but there is definitely something like magical and 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 I have a deep connection with with the spirit world and I'm I'm really still at the beginning of my journey of understanding the ways that 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 my gifts show up um as a channel and a connector and and a communicator because when I am open to it um you know it it just it comes through my research it comes through my work and it's a lot of you know kind of quote unquote lucky breaks but I don't think it's an accident that I um I'm in this position and I'm stewarding this project and that I am doing it with, with help from the human and the spirit realms. Absolutely. And you have the skill set to do it. You also were, you know, given these different projects that helped you deepen your skills in order to then like set you on this path. I mean, I'm all about following the the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs as I'm so fond of saying (laughs) and it feels like you've been doing that with a lot of trust and a lot of faith um, a bit of surrender I'd love to invite you in our last moments together Cece to just like put out whatever requests both to our listeners here in the material world and to any spiritual beings who I don't know are (laughs) fans of this podcast (laughs) I love that Yes, I I know for sure that they're just like listening to the radio waves out. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So so what what requests do you have? What would you love for us all to hear and how could we support you? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Cam. You know, at this point, what the campaign really needs in this final week is just visibility. You know, I mentioned that there is a hard deadline with determining if we're able to get my grandmother's house um just because my cousin does need to to make that determination by the end of the month and and i you know as this has become more of a reality as as it's being funded i'm also sitting with more specific numbers in the budget that are helping me understand that i yes i I am a steward and I am dedicated to this, but I also like me, Cece as a person um, cannot go into personal debt. Um, it's, it defeats the entire purpose of the intergenerational um, healing that is happening here for that to happen. Um, so like my goal, you know, would be to get this $50,000 um, that would allow me to meet the, 
the difference between the mortgage I was pre-qualified for um, and also give me just a little bit of wiggle room in, in that budget for closing costs and and GoFundMe fees and, and all that kind of things. But ideally, like if I had to just like sow my wildest oats and my biggest yes. dreams, it would, yes. would be as much of this house, if not, let me see, you know, let me just speak in like, you know, it's my dream. I would love to be able to like buy this house in cash. I would love to be able to do whatever we would like to do with the property, like as soon as it comes in our, to our possession. And that would allow us to be able to turn it into a rental property and to turn it into a retreat for Black Femmes and all these other things that get more complicated with the different types of loans and also would require me to make a much more substantial personal changes in my life to be there full time. And so as I'm just thinking about this, I am, I'm like, I would love to just be able to have to own this house for it to be in the family and for us to just get to work with the healing that happens within our communities and within our family. Yes. And I'm just reflecting back what you said to you that you don't want to have to suffer. You want this to be sustainable. You want this to happen in a matter so you, Cece, can thrive so that the (laughs) legacy of your ancestors can be even healthier and more abundant and prosperous and vital. Um, And I imagine that that is what their wish would be for you. Don't you agree? Yes. And I will say lastly, you know, I I had a lot of like, you know, uh, Uh, I wanted to make sure that I was managing this campaign in the most ethical way possible. And I knew that I personally wouldn't feel comfortable like taking people's money if I didn't have like a plan B for what happens if like we didn't meet the money and we still raise money, but we couldn't do anything with it. And so that's where, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the land in Spring Hope. And so there are, you know, I think it's possible at this point now that we have some money to really just like start buying up lots. And I already was able to get in contact with with one cousin who does have some acreage. So even if it's just starting with the lots, like I will buy back, I don't care if I have to buy back my family's land one lot at a time. Like we're going to do this and maybe it's just the land for now. And then down the line, we're able to like, you know, build an A-frame cabin and then, you know, whatever. But like, this is going to be a plan that, that, that grows. And, um, and yeah, I just want to thank everyone for, for helping to water the, these seeds, um, and, and help bring this, this dream into reality. Ah, beautifully said. Cece, where can people find out more about you and specifically more about this GoFundMe project? And send you lots and lots of money and boost your signal super loudly and brightly. (laughs) All of it, all of it, all of it. Where can that happen? Yes, yes. So you can follow me on the internet. I'm on Instagram at ccpaspal, P-A-S-C-H-A-L. I'm on Twitter at chiquitapaspal, C-H-I-Q-U-I-T-A. Haskell. And uh, and in both of those places, you can find the GoFundMe link um, clearly posted. Um, Appreciate whatever you can give if you're in a position to. Um, But also know that sharing and and visibility makes a huge difference as well. Um, I would just love to get this in front of some some fresh eyes, some new communities of, of folks who also share these values and want to support this project. Beautiful. Cece, I am just so moved 
by this story and I'm so excited about its next chapter. I mean, you're already such a success, but I know there are many, many more dollars and many, many more bright and shining lots and maybe buildings and so on in your future that are tied to this beautiful mission and this beautiful intention. And uh, I don't know. I just love you and I can't wait to see what happens. Thank you so much, Pam. I I love you too. And thank you for all the support, you know, and all the magic sparkles that you bring into my life and the lives of everyone else. That's it for the show. Many thanks as always to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and yes, to Cece Pascal, doubly so. And thank you all for your support and for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.